all I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Church, that really, really needs to be our anthem. We are to be consumed with Christ. He is all we need. And as Mark, Pastor Mark prayed the same words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, all things are from Him, all things are through Him, and all things are to Him. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus Christ is so worthy to be worshipped. Let us pray. Lord, Oh, Lord, we need you. Lord, you have blessed us with the opportunity to be here this morning, Lord, by your divine providence, by getting us out of bed to come here. Lord, with whatever motivation that you use to get us here, Lord, we are here. Lord, I pray that the, the direction of our heart, Lord, is that we would recognize that we need you. And Lord, that you would be the only thing that we pursue Lord, that we would be consumed by you. Lord, I pray that, that I would just be a signpost, Lord, a channel of your grace. Lord, that I would be nothing more than just a sign pointing to you. Lord, that your words would be poured forth from my mouth this morning. Lord, that you would be exalted and lifted on high. Lord, that our hearts would be softened and humbled and prepared to receive your word. Lord, that we would hear your word, love your word, and obey your word this morning. Lord, less of us, more of you. Lord, be exalted as we seek you. As we desire to understand your word, Lord, illuminate your text to us. And Lord, let us receive it with gratitude. As your spirit applies these truths to our lives as we seek you throughout the week. God, you are so good. Be exalted. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Up until now, in Paul's letter to the Colossians... He has laid the groundwork of who Christ is. He has explained the spiritual realities of what Christ has done positionally for you. And he has warned against false teaching. Now as we get to Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, we see a shift in the letter. In fact, the word therefore, or as some of your translations say, if then or so, or since, all these words are sequential and signify transition. I prefer the translation that uses therefore, because when we see this word, we should ask ourselves, what is the therefore, therefore? And in this context, the therefore is meant to connect everything in Paul's letter up until now, 
as summed up with Paul's phrase immediately after he says, therefore, which is, if you have been raised up with Christ. The therefore, then, is leading us to an if-then situation. So let me explain, because this will not only help us understand this specific text, but also it will give, a, give you some further Bible study tools for your own personal study when trying to decipher the scriptures. Essentially, Paul is saying that the phrase, if you have been raised up with Christ, is the summation of everything that he has written thus far in chapters 1 and 2. For instance, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, Paul explains who this Christ is that we have possibly been raised up with. We see that Christ is the supreme and sovereign ruler of the universe. That Christ is 100% man and 100% God. We see that Christ is the only one worthy of worship. We see that Christ is the one who created the world and Christ is the one who sustains the world. And we see that Christ is the one in whom belongs the inheritance that is the world. He is the one who purchased your redemption by bearing your penalty on the cross. And he is the only one who defeated death once and for all, thus giving you a certainty of resurrection and eternal life with him. This is the Christ whom we have been raised up with, if indeed we have been raised up. Doesn't this Christ sound awesome? Apart from him... Life has no meaning and we are doomed. But with him, life has meaning, satisfaction, fulfillment, and everything pertaining to abundant life and godliness, including perfect joy, perfect peace, and whatever other spiritual fruit you are after. It is all found in our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, if you have been raised up with this Christ, this is the Christ in whom he is talking about. The Christ from chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, that we just described. This means that our life can have this true abundance that was also true of him. And we get to spend eternity with him because he can raise us up. How? Well, as the verse portrays, if he does it. Again, Christianity is not about what you do, the things you see, or secret information you know, like all the false teaching in Colossae says. But Christianity is about Christ in you, the hope of glory. As Colossians 1.27 says, this is the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is Christ who saves you, and it is Christ who sustains you. The Christian life is designed to be 100% God and 0% you. You were created to be dependent upon him. And as you rest in that dependence upon him, Christ will do his work in you, causing you to be obedient as promised in Ezekiel chapter 36. As 
the Bible school, the, the, the founder of the Bible school that I went to always said, it takes God in the man for man to be the man that God made man to be. Again, it takes God in the man for man to be the man that God made man to be. You are not created to live the Christian life in your own strength. It's impossible. Only Jesus can. And only Jesus did so. And the Christian life is you dying to self so that Jesus may now live in you. If Jesus is not alive in you, then you cannot live the Christian life. It takes God in you for you to live the Christian life. So again, if you have been raised up with Christ, that phrase in verse 1 means that Christ, from chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, lives in you, like chapter 1, verse 27 says, and that you have received Him, like chapter 2, verse 6 says, and that you are now complete in Him, like chapter 2, verse 10 says, and that the Spirit is in you and has sealed you, like Ephesians 1.14 says, and that you have all things now pertaining to life and godliness in Him, as 2 Peter 1.3 says. And according to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, that you have been circumcised and baptized spiritually in Him. That you, according to chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, have been forgiven, made alive, and set free from the law in Him. And in chapter 2, verse 20, that you have died with Him so that you may now live with Him. All of that, all of that, what we quickly just ran through, Paul says, can be summed up in if you have been raised up with Christ. Because if all of that is true of you, if all of that is true of you, that the Jesus we read about in 1, 15 through 20 is now in you, that you walk in him, that you've received him, that you're complete in him, that you've been baptized and circumcised in him, that you've been forgiven in him, made alive together in him, that you've died with him, if all of that is true, then you have been raised up with him and vice versa. If you have been raised up with him, then all of those things, Paul says, is true. Amen. And so chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, is the summation sentence for all of chapters 1 and 2. Then, the text transitions. It transitions us into an if-then statement. Essentially, next, Paul says, If you have been raised up with Christ, then... Keep seeking the things above. The then is implied. It's inferred in the text. It's not written. Meaning that if Christ is in you, you have already begun to seek the things above. Because as Romans chapter 3 says, no one desires God. None seek after Him. And so if you have been raised up with Christ, you have already now begun to seek the things of Christ. And Paul says, now you must continue to seek the things above. Because the inference here is that if you do not keep seeking, as the text says, then one of two things will happen. Either, number one, you'll fall prey to the false teaching in the land. Whether it be general Gnosticism 
as described in chapter 2, verse 4, and chapter 2, verse 8. That we will be persuaded with persuasive argument, or, or that we will be taken captive through philosophy or empty deception according to, the, according to the traditions of men. Or that we will fall into legalism and Judaism, as expressed in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Or we'll fall into mysticism, as expressed in Colossians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Or asceticism, as expressed in verses 20 through 23. Or maybe a mixture of all of them, otherwise known as syncretism. Or, secondly, the idea is that you'll fall prey to false living, as expressed in the rest of the book of Colossians, chapters 3, verse 5, through chapter 4, verse 6. As Paul gives exhortation after exhortation on how to live the Christian life. So Paul says, keep seeking. Because if you don't keep seeking, you will fall prey to false teaching. And if you don't fall prey to false teaching, you'll fall prey to false living. Again, there are errors and ditches on every side. And it is a lot easier to fall prey to these destructive heresies and lifestyles and choices than we think it is. Which is why Paul exhorts us to Keep seeking. We must, church, we must be diligent to seek Christ and His Word and His righteousness, lest we fall away and become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, like Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says. Now before we get too far ahead of ourselves, as we will come back to verse 1, I want you to see the parallelism between verses 1 and verse 2. Paul repeats himself in his commission to us. However, there is a difference. In verse 1, it is clear that Paul is referring to our affections being met in Christ and His power and His glory. So when we read, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The connotation is that we are seeking Christ, His glory, that our affections are are for him. But in verse 2, the connotation is that Paul is referring to your volitional will, which is under control of your mind. As he says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. In both instances, for our affections and for our actions, we are to seek Christ in the things above diligently. So then in verse 1, what are we specifically to seek and how? Paul tells us that we are to seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now this is not just a general passing phrase where he's just saying, think about heaven. Just think about heaven. Jesus is in heaven. He's next to God the Father. Just think about it. It's not what he's saying. In fact, there's a ton to unpack here. And what this means is that Jesus is seated at the right hand. And so we are going to just scratch the surface on a few of the implications. First off, the reality that as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. The purification of sins is complete. 
Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ, after he died on the cross, resurrected and ascended into heaven, he made complete the purification of your sins and he sat down. So when we see here in Colossians chapter 3, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, we must think about this reality, that the purification of sins is complete. So we are then to continually rest in the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus. When faced with temptation to sin, we must seek Christ's conquering of that sin and sin no more. When faced with the shame and guilt from giving in to sin, we must seek Christ in the forgiveness that was purchased for you by His blood and sin no more. Church, simply put, never forget, not even for a moment, the beautiful grace of God that has forgiven you of all past, present, and future sins. And use that reality to excel still more, to keep seeking to press on, and to walk in Him. As the old Puritan prayer goes, there is no treasure so wonderful as that continuous experience of Thy grace towards me, which alone can subdue and forgive the risings of sin within. Lord, give me more of it. Church, let this be our cry. We need more grace, ever thanking God for His glorious grace. And so when Paul exhorts us to seek Christ seated at the right hand of God, one of the implications is that we seek His forgiveness, that we rest in His grace, both to defeat sin and to rest in the forgiveness of said sin. Secondly and thirdly, Jesus being seated at the right hand signifies power as the one reigning and ruling and glory as the one worthy of worship. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 through 23 says, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, seeking Jesus in this way will reveal that we are to honor and revere Him for who He says He is. And He says He is Lord. He is Master. He is in control. And Paul says here that all things are in subjection to Him. We read in the Psalms that all things created... Worship Him. Even the rocks, the mountains, the stars, they all worship 
Him all the time as they are in constant subjection to Him. Yet we are the only creatures that rebel from our created purpose to worship Him. And instead, we often worship self or we worship a false depiction of God that we have created. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, as Jesus is speaking to the masses, He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And then goes on to say, And then he goes on to say that all those who hear my words and act on them, those are the ones, the righteous ones, who are as those who build their house on the rock. We have to hear God's words and act on them. Do you hear the confusion in Jesus' voice when he says this? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, yet you don't do what I say? It doesn't make sense. You call me master, yet you do not obey me. Christians, as we profess to know Christ, what we are saying is, Jesus, you are my Lord. And when we live in sinful rebellion against him, we say, Lord, you are Lord of my life, but I don't care. I don't want to serve you. I don't want to honor you. The only ones who truly submit to his lordship as expressed in him being seated at the right hand of God, are those who say, as Jesus says, those who act on the words that he says. Why? Because just as Jesus had one governing desire, which was to honor and obey the Father, we too will have that same desire if we are Christians. Because if we are Christians, then that means that Jesus lives in us. And if he lives in us, he will live his life out in us, just as he did on earth. Guys, we just sang before this sermon, Jesus is my life. That is not something just to be said flippantly and passingly as just some Christianese phrase that we say. But in that very profession, when we sing it, Jesus is my life, what we are saying is, Jesus, you now live in me. You have found your home in me. And the same life that you lived on this earth, you are now living in me. And just as your desire was to serve the Father, to obey the Father, and to bring glory and honor to the Father, and to bring salvation to all nations, now your same purpose is being lived out in me. And this is why Christianity can demand obedience without it being legalism. Because the truly converted will obey and long to obey by the power of Christ in them. Does it mean you'll be perfect? Absolutely not. That's why Paul says, keep seeking. Because you haven't yet arrived and you won't arrive until the day of completion as Philippians 1, 6 says. But you are still to press on, working out your salvation, knowing that it is God working in you and through you, just as Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says. And again, his position in heaven reveals that we are to worship and glorify him. Church, that needs to be our chief motivation in life. And when it is, we are most joyful. To illustrate this, Let's go to Exodus chapter 32, where you will see a bad example of this 
as well as, as, well as a good example of this. We looked at this on my life group on Thursday night. There's your shout out, Myrna. <laughs> this passage, so obscure, been taught wrong for centuries. In Exodus chapter 2, we see the infamous story of the golden calf. What we see is Moses is on the mount for 40 days with the Lord. And as he's getting near to the end of his time, God says, go down to your people, for they are worshiping this golden calf. And what we see play out is that the Israelites say in verse 1 of chapter 32, come, make us a God who will go before us. Many of your translations probably say, make us gods who will go before us, or bring out these gods, plural. But what the translators failed to realize and recognize is that this word gods is the plural word Elohim as used all throughout scripture to signify the God, the God of Israel, the God that created the world, the same God in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This word gods or God singular with a lowercase g is the same word for God, which is Elohim. It's a singular plural noun. And so we always depict this story as these Israelites now all of a sudden worshiping a false god as if they were worshiping Baal. That's not what is happening. They are desiring to worship Yahweh. They are desiring to worship the God who brought them out of Egypt. And we see that in verse 4, as Aaron takes all the gold from the people and throws it in to make God. And he says, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Do you think that Aaron and the Israelites all of a sudden forgot that it was Yahweh who brought them out of the land of Egypt? No. They're saying, hey, here's Yahweh, and we don't know where he's at because he's up there on the mountain with Moses. So let's make a physical depiction of him so that we can worship him. We see this, the proof of this in verse 5. As Aaron builds an altar for this calf and proclaims, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. These Israelites are thinking that they are worshiping Yahweh. They're not, because it's a false depiction of him. But these Israelites are not breaking the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. They are breaking the second commandment, you shall not have any graven images of me. So these people are practicing idolatry in the sense of, hey, here's God, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think that he's like this, so I'm going to worship him this way. They're not worshiping a false God. They're worshiping God in a false way. And the fruit of that is that God says, actually, you are worshiping a cow because you're not actually worshiping me because I said to be worshiped this way. Even though the heart of Israel was, we want to worship Yahweh, that's not what happened. But we see something incredible in verse 10. He says, now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you, Moses, a great nation. 
God says to Moses, I'm going to destroy the people and I'll start over with you, Moses. But what we see in verses 11 through 14 is that Moses is seeking the things of God, not the things of man. Because if Moses was seeking the things of man, that offer in verse 10 would sound pretty wonderful. Whoo! I get to be the guy? You're telling me, God, that, that for all the rest of eternity, that these people are going to look at me as, as I'm the father of Israel? That's Abraham. I get to take the place of the great patriarch Abraham? You get to start over with your promise and covenant with me? It'd be pretty easy for him to say. But what we see in verse 11 is that Moses is seeking the things above. And Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about from doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land which I have spoken I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now don't get lost in the weeds. Moses does not change the mind of God as if God is someone that can be changed or swayed. What we see here is Moses in his prayer to God is seeking God and God's will and he knows the word and he knows the promises. And Moses knows, wait a minute God, you can't do this. You can't start over with me. You promised Abraham that from his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You rescued Israel from Egypt and told them that you would proclaim your glory in all the land. And so if you destroyed the Israelites in the land right now, what would that say to the Egyptians? You're not a God worthy to be glorified. So God, you can't do this. Your word says otherwise. And so God, as we anthropomorphize him, says that he changes his mind. God doesn't change his mind. God deals with Moses to reveal what's in Moses' heart. And what's in Moses' heart is seeking the things above. Moses doesn't have his glory in mind. He has God's glory in mind. And he says, no, God, hold fast to your promise. Be patient be merciful to these people, for that is what you promised them. And as we see later on in Exodus chapter 32, in verse 26, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Moses goes down the mountain later, and he sees the wickedness of the nations, and he says, Now is your chance to repent. For you guys have acted wickedly. This is not how God desires to be worshipped. And if you really are for the Lord, then come to me. And we see the sons of Levi gathered together with him. But 3,000 did not. And 3,000 were smote because of their wickedness. 
those 3,000 didn't desire the Lord. You see, the Word of God is to be our constant call to repentance, just like it was here for the Israelites. It should serve as our greatest reproof and our correction, as 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, so that we can be taught and trained and corrected and reproved and equipped for every circumstance in life. To seek Christ seated at the right hand of God is to rest in His forgiveness, it is to adhere to Him as Lord, and it is to make His glory the chief aim of all of our life, just like Moses and the Levites in Exodus chapter 32. In fact, later on in Exodus chapter 33, God says, Moses, I will give you whatever you want. What do you want? And you know what Moses asks for? To see the glory of the Lord. Moses had one thing in mind, God's glory. And church, I am telling you that the beauty of having Jesus as our Lord is that He is a merciful and loving Master. He will never leave you nor forsake you, but instead He will work in you to produce an eternal weight of glory for all of eternity starting now. He is so worthy to be worshipped and so worthy to submit to. Now in verse 2, Paul says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Again, this seems to imply that Paul is speaking more about our volitional will here as in decisions we make and the thoughts we have rather than what we would say our hearts truly desire. However, the reality is that these are intricately connected because the deeds and thoughts and words that we have actually reveal the depths of our heart, which is why Paul says something similar in Romans 8.6. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. What is your mind set on? Is it set on fleshly things or on heavenly things? Are you living for yourself or are you living for Christ? Now there are four passages in scripture that I want to bring us to so that we are, so that we really are analyzing our lives, our deeds, our motives which ultimately reveal our heart. Because as our life group studied this last Thursday in Revelation chapter 2, it is so possible to be like the church in Ephesus. To know the word of God, to have the right doctrine, to even play church in a good way, where our deeds are representative of the fact that we love Jesus, yet doing all of that, as Revelation 2 says, with forgetting our first love, Jesus. It's so easy for us to go through the Christian motions thinking, I'm a Christian, I'm doing the right thing, I even know the Word of God, I'm in the Word of God, yet we have left our first love. And so, when we lose Him, we need to run back to Him. He's there for us, waiting for us, seeking to consume us. Remember, He is Lord of all, including our lives and everything in them. This life is about His glory and His honor and the salvation of souls because He is most glorified in salvation, which is why He sent His Son to die. Therefore, our mentality must be that which seeks Christ and His glory. And so first off, look at Psalm chapter 67, verses 1 through 2. It's up on the screen. David cries out, God, be gracious to us, and bless us, and cause His face to shine upon us, that Your way may be known on the earth, 
your salvation among all nations. Why does David pray for blessings? So that God's way would be known on the earth and that salvation would come to the nations. David has zero desire to be blessed just for being blessed sakes. He says, Lord, bless us, cause your face to shine upon us, so that your way would be known. So that salvation would go to your nations and your people. Are we using the blessings that God has given us for the same purposes? Remember, this is Paul's exhortation for us in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. That we would set our minds upon the things above, not on the things that are on this earth. Secondly, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 6, Philippians 4, and 1 Timothy 6. Because all passages convey the same message and have the same point that Paul makes here in Colossians 3, 1 through 2, about seeking Christ and the fruit that comes from this task. So first, let's look at the similar commissions to seek Christ. In Matthew 6, 33, and then we're going to go back and look at all of them. In Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul says, And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And in 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And remember, Paul in Romans 8 says that the mind set on him produces life and peace, abundant spiritual life and peace in Christ that breaks the barriers of worldly satisfaction and contentment and surpasses all human understanding. Doesn't that sound glorious? Who doesn't want this? And it's all yours in Christ Jesus as you keep seeking. But how? Go to Matthew chapter 6. And as we turn, let's start in verse 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This, these three verses here are not saying that you can't have nice things, you can't have possessions, you can't have wealth, but it's saying, what are you living for? Is it Christ or is it for the things on this earth? Because a lot of people will just deprive themselves of things and say, well, because I don't have anything I'm storing up for myself. No, I'm, not, I'm storing up for myself in heaven. Nope, that's not the case. It's what is your heart after? Is your heart set on Christ? And a lot of us say, oh, I do love Jesus. And out of my love for Jesus, I'm just going to go buy this and that and store up for myself. And it's okay because I'm a Christian. And so God blesses it. That's not the right mentality either. We have to seek Him. 
Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Man, we must make sure that we are serving God. Verse 25, for this reason I say to you. What reason? What we just read in 19 through 24. Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or to what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Church, that is the bare necessities of humanity. He says, don't even be worried about that. We are so worried about storing up for ourselves and all these different things and plans that we do on this side of glory. And Jesus says, don't be worried about those things. Not even your food, not even your water, not even your clothing. God will provide. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. That they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, and they do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. Do not worry then saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? Satan so desperately wants us to get off track and to think that we are owed these things, that we are owed a life of satisfaction in the physical sense on this side of glory, that this life is for us, that this is some sort of waiting period or waiting ground until we get into eternity where everything is just perfect as we're waiting in the perfections of God forever. And so Satan says, so while you're here, just live it up, man. You're a Christian. Do your thing. It's okay. Have whatever you want. Just live your life. Pursue the things. God wants you to have them. After all, God's good, right? He gives good gifts. So give yourself good gifts and do it all in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, don't even worry about the things you eat or what you drink or where your clothing will come from. God will provide. Amen. Philippians chapter 4. Let's go there. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. As Paul is in prison when he's saying this. And Paul is writing this at the end of his life after going through many, many, many trials and tribulations. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 in your own time and read about them. 
He even talks about, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, about days without food, days without water, days without sleep. We just read in Matthew 6 that Jesus says, don't even worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or, or what clothing you'll have. And Paul says, I went days without all of that stuff. And he says here in Philippians 4 verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He doesn't say rejoice in the fact that you have a savings account full of money. He doesn't say rejoice in the fact that you have all these possessions and all these trips and all, all, this, all these friends and a wonderful family. Don't rejoice in the fact that your life is trial-free and that you're perfectly healthy. He says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Christ is all we need. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. That is what we are to rejoice in. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And in verse 19 and 20, And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Whether possessions or no possessions, whether riches or no riches, whether hungry or satisfied, Jesus Christ is all we need. And 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, the doctrine conforming to godliness. Guys, Christianity is a doctrine conforming to godliness. Our lives are to be transformed in Christ Jesus. It's not talking about a positional godliness. He's talking about a practical godliness. That as we pursue Christ, we are to pursue godliness. That He would transform our lives from the inside out. And Paul says here, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, verse 4, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest, a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy and strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of a depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. If you love Jesus, it doesn't mean your life is going to be sunshine and rainbows. In fact, often the opposite. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, as Jesus writes to seven different churches, the church of Smyrna is praised by Jesus. Zero rebukes, zero corrections. And Jesus says, I know that even in your trials and in your poverty, I praise you for pressing on, for holding fast to Christ Jesus. Eleven of the twelve apostles martyred and persecuted to the point of death. If we love Jesus, godliness is not usually a means of great gain on this side of glory. It can be, but that is not to be our focus. But Paul says in verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. 
If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Again, Paul in Philippians chapter 4 just said he's learned the secret of contentment. But in 2 Corinthians 11, he says that he's gone days without food and days without water. And here he says, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And Paul says, I didn't even have those and I was still content. You know why? Because I had Christ. In verse 9, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue perseverance, pursue gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And life indeed is life in Christ. Paul couldn't be more clear. Jesus couldn't be more clear. Set your minds on the things above. Do we think this way about our lives, our money, our possessions, our time, our affections? It's not at all to say that you can't have nice things or have lots of money or have hobbies or take vacations. But it is to say that we must hold all of these things with open hands. And we must be seeking Christ and how he wants us to spend his money. And how he wants us to use his possessions. And how he wants us to use his time. Because it's all his. And if we are seeking him in it, then we would be certain that how we are conducting our lives is exactly how Jesus would be. If he were you. Because Jesus is in you. So he is going to operate differently in the lives of all his children. So your life is going to look different than my life, and your life is going to look different than his life. However, his character doesn't change, nor does his chief aim. He desires for himself to be glorified and for people to be saved. And if your life is not geared around those two things, then you are not living as if Christ were in you. And the only way to live as if Christ were in you is to die to self so that Christ may live in you. Is your life being lived for the glory of Christ and the salvation of souls? If so, that will affect the way you spend your time, your money, your affections, your energies. Because it's all Christ's. All things from Him, through Him, to Him, for Him, to Him be the glory. 
It's not to deprive yourself of things on this earth just for deprivation's sake. It's to hold everything with hands wide open and say, Lord, you are Lord of my life. You are Lord of my money. You are Lord of my time. You are Lord of my possessions. You are Lord of my affections. Lord, take it all. Let us seek him in every area of our life. So why does Paul tell us two times back to back to seek and to set our minds on the things above? Because verse 3, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Church, you have died. If you are a Christian, you have died to sin, died to self, died to the world, died to your flesh. Galatians 2.20, For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. For I have been crucified. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. It is no longer I who live. Christianity is not just a surfacey makeover or where we just get to, to claim Christ and live our lives however we want. It is a transformation from the inside out where we have died. We have put aside our interests and our desires and said, Jesus, what do you want for me? You are no longer bound to the world like the world is. You are dead to worldly lusts and pleasures. So don't live this life like you are in it. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says that we are citizens of heaven. We are to live like it. Our citizenship is in heaven. Man alive do we focus so much on our citizenship in this country, in America. It's not about that. Christianity is not about your rights or your freedoms. It's not about this country or who's in office. It's about Christ and who's on the throne. We're so focused on our citizenship in America that we forget our citizenship in, he in heaven. Do you know that Paul was, was a citizen of Rome and that it was illegal for them to beat citizens of Rome? Read the book of Acts and see how often Paul was beaten by the Romans. Do you understand that at any given point, Paul could have said, Hey, I'm a Roman. Can't do that. And they would have immediately had to have stopped. And now their lives are on the line for beating a Roman. Yet Paul endured the sufferings for Christ. We look at the state of our country and we think, Oh, what are we going to do? We've got to protect our rights and our freedoms and we've got to store up for ourselves here. Oh, it's, it's going down the drain. Picture yourself Paul's life. A.D. 60, Rome. Nero reigning and ruling. What we're facing in America is not even close to what the early church faced. And you know what the early church did? They entrusted themselves to the Lord. They endured suffering, endured persecution, submitted themselves to the government, to the reigning and ruling authorities. And said, Christ is my life and I'm going to pursue him. Even if that means the seizure of my property, the seizure of my, seizure of my possessions, the, the loss of friends, the fact that the world is going to hate me, I'm going to entrust myself to Christ. And you know the fruit of that? Not only did they in inherit eternal life and the spiritual joys of living on this side of glory, as Paul talks about here in Philippians 4, perfect joy, perfect peace, able to rejoice. But Rome 300 years later was a Christian nation. Rome wasn't a Christian nation because all the Christians got together and said, Hey, let's fight against the government. They said, Hey, let's entrust ourselves to the one who judges righteously. 
And whether or not our life is good in the physical sense, we're going to live for Christ. Our life, we have died to self and we are hid with God. This is not your home. Don't store up for yourself here or live it up while you're here. This life is to be about Christ and His glory and the salvation of souls. Make that your aim, Paul says. That may sound daunting or unreasonable. And well, it would be if it were left up to us. Because that is a task that we are not able to accomplish on our own. However, it isn't. It isn't left up to us. As we've read and studied, if you are a believer, Jesus lives in you. Your life is hidden in Him. And in Him you have been made complete. So as you rest in those truths and seek to know Him more, the Spirit will lead you. You see, Pastor Mark and I cannot tell you how to live your life in a lot of areas. We can't tell you how to spend your time and how to spend your money and what to do with your possessions or what to buy. Only the Spirit can. We're about to transition into the rest of the book of Colossians. That's exhortation and after exhortation on practical exhortations for us to live the Christian life. They're kind of vague. Be hospitable. Well, maybe that's different for you than it is for that person. It's the Spirit who has to apply it to your life. But I promise as you pursue Jesus relentlessly, as implied here by Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he will lead you to do things you never thought were possible. He will strip away all sorts of pride and insecurities and hindrances. And he will bring you into the place of contentment where Paul was brought to and where Jesus exhorted us to be, that whether or not we have anything, we actually have everything. Because we have Jesus and he is all we need. Church, be consumed by Jesus. Always Jesus, only Jesus. Father, thank you so much, Lord for giving us Jesus. Lord, Jesus is all that we need, but Lord, He is so often not all that we desire. Lord, I pray that You would work in all of our lives, myself included, Lord, that we would love You more, desire You more. Lord, that, we, that You would get rid of the distractions in our lives that cause us to live for self. Or Lord, that You'd break down the false depictions that we've made of you in our life and how we think about you in the Christian life. Lord, that you'd strip it all away. Lord, that you would bring us to your word and bring us to prayer. Lord, that you would lead us and guide us in your way. Lord, that as we would seek your word to know you, Lord, your spirit would guide and direct us in how to apply these truths to our lives. Lord, be exalted in our lives. Lord, I so desperately desire for myself and for all of us in this room to love you, to live our lives in you and through you. Lord, that we truly can say, for we have died and our life is hidden in you. Lord, let us be a people marked by our love for you. Lord, let us be a people marked by the fact that it is your light and your salt that is alive and vibrant within us. Lord, that we would keep seeking the things above Keep seeking you, Lord, in your forgiveness and your lordship, Lord, in your glory. Lord, that we would not be seeking the physical, Lord, but that we would be seeking the spiritual. Lord, be exalted in our lives as we leave this place today. 
Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?